to the Detroit Joe podcast. Today, we are looking at the disenfranchised people in the criminal justice system, a system which will cause you to lose your loved ones and yourself. I mentioned Colleen in my why statement and how she had gotten many disenfranchised people out of the federal prison system. How did she do it when others could or would not? Now, I know you might be saying, those people belong in prison and they are not my concern. And you might be right. But what if they're innocent? They could be guilty, but receive too much time. Remember the federal time one of our mayors was given and how Trump's people did crimes much worse and got very little time. Think about the people who invaded the nation's capital and got little or no time. Well, today, we're going to get some clarity on the federal prison system. Who gets out and who must stay? Today, I introduce to you an outstanding attorney doing the hard lifting for the disenfranchised people in the Eastern District of Michigan, Colleen Fitzharris. Welcome to Detroit Joe. Thank you so much for having me, Joanne. Well, I must say that you are a friend and I watch you work like a dog every single day running from prison to prison. So you are the person that I had to ask these questions to. Okay, all the jobs that you could have gotten after law school, why did you choose this one? I decided I actually went to law school knowing that I wanted to be a public defender. Um, it was very important to me to do a job that made me feel like I could, you know, have my politics and my high-minded ideals in place, but represent real people, where the concepts of fairness and justice and due process actually mean something and you can see how they impact people. You know, it's one thing to think and talk about um, what is a fair system, what is a reasonable seizure, and quite another to see and talk to and represent the people impacted by some of those high-minded ideals or the watering down of those rights. So for me, it took a while between college and law school, and um, I had done some direct services work and I had done some policy level work, and I thought that being a public defender brought the two together. It was also very important to me to do a job where I was not, I didn't have to turn anyone away because they can't afford to pay me. And I actually, this sounds maybe odd, but I didn't want to have to pick my clients. They're just assigned to me, which creates its own challenges and difficulties. But that is actually an important part to me of the job is that they don't pick me. And so it is my job to show them that I can be trusted and do for, you know, whoever comes through the door the best I can. Wow. Well, let me ask you this one question. I think everybody knows the answer to it, but is justice blind? Absolutely not. And why do you think it's not blind? I think it doesn't take many days watching court, criminal court proceedings to recognize just how more severely impacted people of color are in the criminal legal system. I was reading a, a report yesterday, actually, that was looking at the prosecutions for firearms cases, just possession of a gun. And 
I don't think I have had a single client who's charged with being a prohibited person in possession of a gun or a felon in possession, often felons in possession of guns, who is not black. Not a single one. And I represent people who are in the entire eastern half of the state. I know for a fact that the only people committing this crime are not black. Uh, and then I was looking at the data nationally and just how many it's around 54% nationally of prosecutions of people for possession of firearms are black. And then they looked at the ways that people are stopped and how these cases come about. An astonishingly high number of these cases arise out of traffic stops or mm. routine street patrol. You know, about 70% of street patrol cases that arise from regular street patrol are black citizens. Over 60% of cases where the case, you know, comes about because of a traffic stop are black citizens. So it's quite obvious that, you know, driving while black, walking while black is all it takes really for somebody to be investigated and then charged with a crime. So we know that there are white folks that do have guns that are illegal, but they're never charged, are they? Not that I see. And it seems to me, you know, one of the, there's a law, a lot of people don't know this, but being an illegal user of a controlled substance in possession of a firearm. So people who smoke marijuana, which even if it's legal under Michigan law, is not legal under federal law. And I think we all oh. know there are many people who smoke marijuana in the country and have a lot of guns. And I have not seen any of them ever charged. Hmm. Well... Let me ask you this. What is the average crime that people are serving time for? That is a really good question. Because I only represent people who are charged in federal court or have federal cases, I do. I can explain later why sometimes I have clients in state prisons. But about a quarter of our caseload in the Eastern District of Michigan are gun cases. Often, like I said, felon in possession of firearms cases. Another quarter to 30 percent are drug cases. And so at least in the federal system, those are overwhelmingly the crimes for which people are doing a lot of time. Guns and drugs. Guns and drugs. When I was trying to pay off my student loans when I was younger, I had a part time job at the Women's Correction Center and I was a teacher there. And some of my students had told me that they had committed a federal crime but they were passed on to the state. Hmm. Is that a common practice? Well, it can be kind of confusing. I'm sure you've heard of like the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution. So you're not allowed to be charged twice for the same crime or prosecuted twice for the same crime. But there's a big caveat. You're only allowed to be charged and prosecuted by a single sovereign once. So they consider the federal government to be a different sovereign or you know, prosecuting entity than the state. So you can be charged by the state of Michigan for possession of a firearm and by the federal government for possession of the same firearm, same exact conduct. And so sometimes cases begin as state cases and are brought over to federal court. Sometimes they could be brought over to federal court, but are not. I can't, I don't pretend to understand why it happens in some cases and not others. Mm-hmm. So how does your team decide what cases that you're going to take and which ones that you're not? It is random. So the way that I get assigned cases is that every attorney in my office has a duty day. So we are the person who 
is there in court to meet with people who are newly arrested Mm -hmm. and explain to them what is going to happen, what the charges are. And we get our cases assigned based on duty days. So when it is my duty day, if there is a case where someone is having their detention hearing, which is when a judge decides whether they are released on bond or not, those cases are my cases. My office also helps manage a list of lawyers who take federal criminal cases by appointment who are not members of my office. If there is a very large indictment where there are, you know, sometimes large kind of RICO cases, gang cases, we can only represent one person on that case. Otherwise, it's a conflict of interest. And so then my boss then assigns the rest of the clients to that list of lawyers. Okay. Several years ago, uh, you were on TV and you had already told me about this case where that a, a gentleman was serving a lot of time and he was innocent. Could you tell us a little bit about that case? Yes. So that is um, my former client and good friend, Aaron Salter. My office came to represent him because after he had been convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life without parole at the age of 21, he had completed his state appeals process and he filed what's called a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in federal court, which is when somebody who is in a state prison says there is some egregious federal constitutional violation at my trial and ask the federal court to release them from state prison or order a retrial. So Mr. Salter had filed his habeas petition, frankly, many years before I even joined the office. And one of the judges in the district, they're not, he wasn't entitled to a lawyer at that stage, believe it or not. People are only entitled by the Constitution to a lawyer at trial and on direct appeal. But anything after that... It's just the grace of a judge to decide whether to appoint a lawyer to represent someone. So my office was appointed to represent him. And a bunch of lawyers were, you know, I think nearly everyone in my office ended up working on the case. And then eventually I became involved. And around the same time, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office opened its Conviction Integrity Unit which is run by a woman named Val Newman, who had taught at the University of Michigan Law School when I was a student there. Um, And I knew that she had been a lifelong public defender and she was very committed to doing it right. I think some conviction integrity units are PR campaigns. You know, I knew people who knew I submitted Aaron's application on his behalf to have her review it. And then her investigative team worked with our office to try to track down witnesses, any evidence to prove that he was actually innocent of this crime. And one of the investigators on the case, he, we even went so far as to find his trial lawyer, who had frankly done a horrendous job, had only met with Aaron two times for a first degree murder case. Hmm. And the investigators went to his storage unit and were just combing through boxes and boxes and boxes looking for this file. And by almost sheer luck, they managed to find it. And included in that file 
was really important information for Aaron's case about how Aaron had told his lawyer about his alibi witnesses, that he had only met with Aaron twice, and information that showed, including a photograph of another person who we believe is actually the person who committed this murder. And that was actually provided in evidence, and his lawyer did not pay attention to the fact that that was the person who witnesses had identified and been saying all along was the killer. And so after working for a number, almost a year, with the Conviction Integrity Unit, that office agreed to dismiss the charge against Aaron and recommended that he receive full compensation for a wrongful conviction. And he went into prison the day after his 21st birthday, and he was released from prison on his 36th birthday. That's a long time. It's a long time, 15 years. And, you know, I can't, he is someone who has managed to make horrible situation into something good. He was compensated by the state for every year he was in prison, wrongfully. And he bought a home that he named after his grandmother, and he fixed it up. And it is now a home for other exonerees to come home to as they transition back into the community. He provides them housing, helps them. They have group therapy sessions, because that is an extreme trauma. I can't even imagine. Can't imagine. You know, prison, I think, in and of itself is a trauma. But being there for something you didn't do, being wrongly convicted and thinking your life is over, that is almost unimaginable. Are there a lot of people like him locked up? Yes. The Conviction Integrity Unit here in Wayne County has granted, I think, an enormous number of exonerations since it opened in the last four or five years. And there are more. I mean, I have one current case that I, my client is actually innocent, but he is still in prison and figuring out how to get him out is very hard. Undoing a conviction is astonishingly difficult when it is disturbingly easy for someone to be convicted and sentenced to such an extraordinary long sentence. But the prosecutor has got to look at some of the same things that you look at and say, this person's innocent. At the conviction integrity unit stage, yes. I think I wish that more prosecutors would look at the files that they're brought um, before filing charges and pursuing charges. But once somebody is labeled the suspect or, you know, the file is brought to them, blinders are on. And even things ex exculpatory evidence is viewed with skepticism. Or there are a lot of people who are like, well, maybe they're not guilty of this crime, but they're guilty of something. I've heard people say that. I've also heard some attorneys, defense attorneys, say that prosecutors don't like to admit wrong. In my experience, that is very true. Wow. Do you think when a person is charged for a crime and is found guilty, that his color often determines how much time that they're going to get? Yes. They, particularly in the federal system, this has been really well researched. There was an attempt in the 80s to try to eliminate this bias and the creation of the sentencing guidelines, but those ended up baking in, I think, a lot of the systemic problems that we have. So, for example, a lot of the guidelines, a major factor in the guidelines is someone's criminal history. And it is 
just true that particularly black men in America are more likely to be stopped, investigated, and charged with crimes. And so they often are just going to unfortunately have longer criminal histories. Then there are things where people say, well, it's a good thing that someone graduated from high school. But a lot of people, you know, if they grow up in impoverished neighborhoods, violent neighborhoods, I know you know this, Joanne, Mm -hmm. getting to school and getting through the day is hard. Yes, it is. If they're hungry, it's hard to study in school. If they're dealing with uh, trauma at home, you know, or sometimes the parents are too busy, they can't recognize uh, learning disabilities or mental illness, so they don't graduate. And that's considered, you know, not as great for them. And there are just all of these little things that get baked in. I see, you know, it's uh, I think some of the worst things happen actually at detention hearings in kind of, in my opinion, the racist things that happen in a courtroom where people are talking about whether or not someone is a risk of flight or a danger to the community. And people start talking about arrests for which people were never prosecuted and how that means they're a danger, even though there's never been any finding of guilt. You know, I was reading a police report yesterday where somebody, a police officer described a young black man as being suspicious because he showed up five minutes before his bus was supposed to leave. And in the summer, when the police approached him, he didn't make eye contact and he was sweating. So in their eyes, that meant that he must have done something wrong. Right. That he, you know, in their conclusion, what they wrote in their police report is that, you know, in their training and experience, drug traffickers show up shortly before their buses leave and they act nervous when approached by police. I know that I was, last time I was approached, you know, stopped by a police officer for a traffic stop, I was shaking like a leaf. Because it's just scary. It is. You are being accused of something which does not feel good no matter what. And I am certain that no police officer would write in a report that they thought I was trafficking drugs because I seemed nervous. I also know that my dad routinely shows up at the very last minute for flights, buses, trains, anything. He hates to wait around. And I am certain no police officer would ever approach him and investigate him for drug trafficking. What can we, the public, do to try to change that? What can we do? I think, you know, one of the things that is very hard is that we are... As a culture, I think very addicted to the idea that criminal law is the right response to problems, to societal problems. I am not trying to say that I think gun violence is okay or that, you know, drug trafficking, you know, is a victimless crime. It, you know, it obviously causes problems. But we don't think critically about the fact that prison is not solving these problems. Lengthy sentences aren't solving these problems. Very often crimes are either crimes of opportunity, very often the product of boredom, Mm -hmm. the product of few economic opportunities, mental health problems. So rather than investing in prisons and where, you know, people are not being given, it's they're not rehabilitative. And I think actually, if people are being honest with themselves, everybody knows it's true that prison doesn't rehabilitate people. So instead of thinking that by increasing punishment and time in prison, we invest in other programs. 
you know, job opportunities instead of suspending young, usually male teenagers for acting out in school, asking them what's going on at home. You know, why are you angry? And that's where, as a teacher, I can tell you that's where it starts, mm -hmm. right at home. Yes, it does. And we do not support parents in this country by providing them with access to food or clothing for their children. And it's very hard. It is. And I have often said on this show that this is a country that doesn't like children. Because if you like children, you wouldn't have to go in front of the Congress and pass a bill to feed children. If you like children, you would make sure they were all educated well. If you love children, you would make sure they had coats. It is sad that you have to go to the community and say, my students need coats. And we're very fortunate here in this city that we have some nonprofits that will take care of the coats. But usually, you know, teachers did it. Clothes, coats, shoes, haircuts, because this country doesn't really care for children. And that is very, very sad. As I was doing a little bit of research and legal stuff, I am not up on. But I read this one agreement and I said, I'm going to ask you to explain it. It's called the Compassionate Release Limitation in Plea Agreements. What is that? Compassionate release is actually what we have kind of shorthand called a sentence modification or reduction in the federal legal system. So what it means is that if somebody, after they've been sentenced, has been able to show extraordinary and compelling reasons warranting a sentence reduction or modification, then a judge, taking into consideration all the purposes of punishment, can do that. And this was something that the First Step Act of 2018 actually greatly expanded. And my office and all the federal public defenders around the country filed hundreds, even thousands of motions for people who were terrified that they were going to die of COVID-19 in prison. And so many people who are in prison have many of the risk factors for COVID, like diabetes, high blood pressure, hypertension, uh, well, just the same, obesity. I mean, it is not a healthy, physically healthy population. And so during this time, a number of U.S. attorneys' offices started including in their plea agreements waivers of the right if somebody was going to get an agreement to, say, dismiss a charge with a five-year mandatory minimum, they would have to agree to waive their right to file this type of motion, even though you or I or anyone else can't predict when the next pandemic will happen. They wouldn't be able to predict if they are going to get terminal cancer. You know, often this is used as a way to let people die with dignity and not in a prison with their families. And it was something that was pretty outrageous, in my opinion. And I think there were a couple judges who started voicing extreme opposition to the idea that the prosecutor would force someone to give up this safety valve, essentially, to account for things you wouldn't necessarily know about or, you know, changes or, or sometimes even things that maybe you knew at the time someone was sentenced but they've grown up or things have changed and all together, you put it all together in the mix and you say, you know what, this person should get a shorter sentence. 
Fortunately, uh, after a lot of the protests and outcry, the Justice Department, Merrick Garland, said that they are not permitting these types of waivers in plea agreements. But the standard plea agreements still require that somebody waive the right to future relief. If the Supreme Court says that they are actually innocent of a crime because of the way that the statute needs to be interpreted, or if the Supreme Court says that the manner in which they were convicted is unconstitutional, in order to get that plea deal, they have to give it up. Even though as much as I and my fellow public defenders try to stay on top of legal developments, we can't predict what the Supreme Court is going to do in five years. Correct. And the clients have to make, I think, the impossible choice. Do you give the unknowable up or do you take the chance to avoid five extra years in prison, right? And I think these agreements are unconscionable, but I often feel like my clients are forced into taking them. Mm. I often wonder now, you know, we locked so many young boys up. I always say boys, but, you know, they're young men. And some of them are also women. And we've locked them off up on these little drug charges. And a lot of this is for weed. Well, weed's legal now. Why not open up the prison system and say, okay, we threw you in here for some weed. Weed is um, legal now. Go home. Or at least train them so that when they go home, there's something there. There's some opportunity. I really think those that have these weed houses now, that they could hire some of these young boys coming out because they know how to move that product. So if you were trying to sell, you would want someone who knows what they are doing. But we still want to lock everybody up for some of the smallest crimes. I agree with that. You know, the people... There's so much talent being wasted in prison. I mean, the business sense of a lot of these mostly men, frankly, in prison doing these lengthy sentences is incredible. They are incredibly smart people. And if you gave them a legal opportunity, a legal you know, way to make money, they would run with it. You know, one of the things that is so hard with the conversation about marijuana is that it's still illegal under federal law. Right. I will say that it's pretty rare that people are charged these days in federal court for distribution of marijuana. But I still think we haven't learned any of the lessons from the failed attempts to criminalize marijuana or, frankly, any other drug. Because even though I think we have all come to a point where we realize that the punishment disparities between crack and powder cocaine was unequal and irrational and racist, we still are using that same mentality when it comes to the new drugs like fentanyl. And yes, fentanyl is scary and dangerous, but I don't understand why we haven't learned that those 10-year, 20-year mandatory minimums don't stop people from seeking out drugs or selling them. Right. It does basically nothing. Mm -hmm. If a person is poor, black, and brown and innocent of a crime, what are the chances that they're going to be found guilty, especially in Michigan? Well, that is that is very, it's very hard to quantify, but I think very high. I mean, if I just talk about, you know, Aaron Salter's case, 
There was a single person who said that when he was provided a single photo of him, said that looks like the guy who did it. But when he described the shooter, the person was, you know, 5'11 and thin. Aaron Salter was 6'5 and 250 pounds. And the jury still convicted him. I think a huge part of the issue is that we don't have representative juries. I agree. And that is, I think, a product as well of felony disenfranchisement. So although Michigan does not prohibit people convicted of felonies from voting, they are forever barred from serving on juries. And there are really only two direct areas we get to participate in in our system of governance, and that's voting and jury service. And if you have excluded huge numbers of people from participating, and mostly black and brown people, from participating in jury service, you eliminate that experience from the jury deliberations. You eliminate the experience of people who have been stopped for no reason on the street and investigated for something they didn't do. That's, you know, that's true. I've been on a jury a couple of times. And my first time, I had an attitude when I went down there because it was my Easter break. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, I got to lose my Easter break. And as soon as I got into the courtroom and I heard why the man was there, something came to me and says, Joe, you got to be chosen because you you can save him. And it was a, a simple crime to me. Mm-hmm. Two people were at a motorcycle gang party. They had a argument. Two of them came out. It was more than more than two that came out. But two came out that had guns. They both shot at each other. One got shot in his leg, and the other one got shot in the chest. The one that got shot into the chest died. The other one who got shot in the leg, they claimed, police claimed that they could never find him. So what they decided... Well, there was a person that was standing next to him. So we're going to charge him. This case went on for two weeks. We argued. We fought. It was horrible. And I listened to what the other people on that jury said. And one lady who was a writer for one of our newspapers said, well, he might not have done it, but somebody's got to be held accountable. So I said, so you just pick anyone, right? I mean, that was their feeling. Just pick someone. One of the witnesses spoke standard English. He was a black man, articulate. And those on the jury said he had an attitude because he looked the attorney in his eye and he spoke in a certain way. And another person said, well, I know the man's guilty of killing the man because he's trying to intimidate us. I said, how so? Well, he got on the same elevator that we got on. Why? I said, he wanted to go down. And then another one said, well, he parked in the expensive lot. I said, maybe he's got more money than what you have. All this little racial dumb stuff. And we ended up having a a mistrial and that the judge came and spoke with us and he kind of uh, agreed, but we broke down. We split the color line. And luckily there were four black women that said, that boy's going home today. So they were going to try not to have a second trial, but this gentleman had a great attorney. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. 
we're going back to court. So that made me see that a lot of our issues, it is because we don't take jury duty seriously. We try to get out of it. And therefore, a lot of our people get locked up. I think that's absolutely right. And one of the hardest, most confusing things about federal court, and I, you know, very large percentage of my clients are black from the city of Detroit, is that when the jury walks in, in federal court in particular, they look nothing like my clients. I had jury pool we were picking from 50. There were three black people in the entire pool. And you realize that the world that the client lives in and that there are so many assumptions that go into this decision making. And without someone on the jury who can say, you know what, in my neighborhood, it's not like that. Or, you know, what do you think about, you know, you say that he's, he seems aggressive. Like, well, what does that mean? Right. And there's nobody there to push back or interrogate the comments that are often racially loaded and people don't even realize it. And so I'm really glad you were on that jury. And I wish we had more people in federal juries who came with your perspective. Yes. Even though I gave up my Easter, but all of a sudden it didn't matter, you know. Well, let me ask you this. What would you tell the young calling today in law school? Oh, my goodness. That is a very difficult question because in a lot of ways, I'm exactly the same. I actually work at the office now that I had my first legal job as an intern after my first year in law school. I think I would say I would remind myself or to tell myself that law school is not even close to the hardest part of being a lawyer. The law isn't the hardest part. It's the emotional toll that it takes on you. And this is something I think I'm still learning that you need to protect yourself, be kind to yourself. Sometimes it's hard because you lose when you should win. And it's not your fault if that happens. And I can testify on that because I've seen you when a case is going bad. It's all over your face. And I try to give you a few kind words. And it's hard to separate feelings from everything else when it's about a person's life. You don't have to like the person, but you want to make sure that everyone has a fair chance. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it it is hard for me because the hardest part of my job is actually sentencing hearings, where I am the person who knows my client better than anyone in that room besides their family members, if they have family members who come. Mm. I know their family. I know their girlfriends. I know who their children are. And I try to explain who the person is. And I try to talk about, you know, what is the point of taking a man away from his children? Why make him lose a job? Are we actually achieving the objectives we want? Is, you know, do we really need to protect the public from somebody working who has been on bond for almost a year and doing fine? And then there's a prosecutor who speaks who doesn't know my client and usually only talks about their criminal history and the thing that they did that landed them in court. There's a probation officer who met with the client one hour and has gathered records, but that's very different. And then a judge who's often seen the client only twice, when they pled guilty and when they're being sentenced. There are three people in the room whose 
what they say and ultimately obviously what the judge thinks proper punishment is it feels like it matters more than what i can say or what the people the family members their support say and i watch clients get sentenced to four five 20 years in prison and they're people i have learned to care about sometimes it's been a rocky road along the way but i care about them and i know that they don't deserve or it doesn't make sense for them to be in prison that long. Right. Well, Colleen, it is more than a pleasure having you here. And uh, when I first met you, I never thought that you were a lawyer. I don't know what I thought you were, (laughs) but anyone that has you for a lawyer is very, very fortunate. Well, thank you very much. And I hope that you will come back. I would love to. Because I'm sure I'm going to get calls a lot of people will call me to solve problems. And I'll say, well, you know, I, I can't solve the problem, but maybe I can find somebody who can. <laughs> so I am sure that I will get some calls. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And now for my two cents. These two cents are hard. With so many crimes and shootings of children, I'm lost for words. Are people so mentally ill, or have we forgotten how to live together due to the pandemic? With all the mass shootings around the country, someone is going to represent the shooter in court. And the sad part, some will get off or do little time. With that, I will say, this is Detroit Joe signing off, if nothing else. Walk in love and peace.